This is Dr. C, and I'm stoked to welcome you to an episode of Christory the Podcast. When history is told by Christine, the good old days, and even the not-so-good old days, will make you nod your head. I'm glad you made it to the party. Let's do this. Wishing you welcome again to Christory, where history rolls, and it's always an adventure. At least the history that we explore here. We'll leave the boring stuff and the beaten track to someone else. This is Dr. Christine Contrada, and in today's episode of Christory the Podcast, we're sticking with the theme of chance meetings with philosophical heavyweights of the 20th century that inspire cemetery wanderings and reflection about what we can learn from awe-inspiring mental gymnastics, the ones of notable minds. So let's go hang out for a hot minute with Antonio Nino Gramsci and get a sense of what he's all about and what we can learn from him. If this podcast piques your interest, you can also read more about this Sardinian rebel with a cause in an article about him at Christory Online. Gramsci was born on the island of Sardinia in 1891. To give you a sense of Sardinia, D.H. Lawrence said of the island in 1921 that neither Romans nor Phoenicians, the Greeks or Arabs, ever subjected Sardinia is out, is out of the circuit of civilization. It remained too wild to tame. Kind of similar to the way natives of New York City feel about Suffolk County, Long Island. Haters are going to hate, and I'd like to raise a coffee cup to the islands that keep it wild. As far as Gramsci's experience, like rappers, some philosophers wrote about the struggle of being from the streets. Others actually lived it. Gramsci is no fresh prince of Bel Air. He experienced a rough upbringing to the extreme. His youth was marked by disease and hunger. Gramsci was forged in fire. By nature, he had a reserved character, and he was pretty bookish. But he's quite strong-willed. I suggest that his heightened sense of survival instinct was at work. Gramsci, like so many intellectually gifted youth, was an absolute nightmare of a student. He was insolent in the classroom, he was bored, and he was quick to verbally spar toe-to-toe with his teachers. Because he was so intellectually gifted, despite the mountain of odds stacked against him, he did manage to get a full ride to the University of Turin. So it was off to the mainland he went, and it was there that he honed his big brain. We could spend hours talking about Gramsci's many intellectual interests, but I'm going to give you just a little nibble. This is a nibble crafted after a graveyard visit in Rome, along with a colony of cats, who called a non-Catholic cemetery home. Gramsci was a Hegelian Marxist, but please don't let that scare you off. It's a combination of two philosophers' idea. Basically, it's how Hegel changed our perspective about Marx. So, for example, for Marx, ownership of property was a problem because the rich used it to control the poor. For Hegel, we should all possess property. That way you have access to food, shelter, etc. Not just the rich ballers. So it isn't bad by itself. It's just that when we don't all have property something that you have and something that somebody else doesn't have, you have a problem. Also, this type of Marxism focuses on developing a class consciousness so you can see that inequality clearly. 
You have to be able to see it clearly in order to liberate the working class through an uprising, which, for the case of Gramsci and many other Marxists, would mostly be focused on the workers striking, which is often Gramsci's main focus. I promise not to get too philosophically heavy here. I just don't want us wading off into Gramsci's ideas blind. What I will say is that Gramsci definitely wasn't Marx part two. He developed ideas around how culture shaped political and economic systems. So culture for Gramsci is key. The state, by controlling culture, made conditions that would support capitalism. For Marx, it wasn't about culture. It was all about economics. So Gramsci pointed to a cultural revolution as well as Marx's economic one. So it's absolutely no wonder that the fascists hated him so much. From Gramsci's cultural hegemony, that's the problem, which in plain English means that culture is the same because the state forces the sameness of culture. It's exactly what a totalitarian state like fascist Italy needs to function. You need everyone in a nice queue behind the party line. That, of course, murders critical thinking because you can't see any alternatives to what you already have in front of you since everyone is forced on the same page. If you don't question the system, you'll never have a revolution. For Gramsci, the capitalists didn't have to wave a revolution precisely because they set up the culture to support themselves. And they sit back and they take advantage. If you want to push back against culture, it's going to get super nasty. And the state will be all over it like a bouncer in a club about to jump on a fight that erupted on a dance floor. Pressure to change culture can get really ugly. If you study history, it becomes a surefire recipe for a state to cause its own collapse. That's why the great empire builders in history, the Persians, the Romans, they were smart. They let people that they conquered keep their culture rather than take it away. People tend to care a heck of a lot less about economics or politics than they care about their core cultural values. So building on that idea that I just talked about, Gramsci's legacy rests on taking this philosophy and then using it as a foundational role in the Italian Communist Party. So how did this guy rise through the political froth? Gramsci was recognized as being a gifted linguist, It means the man had a way with words. Language is key to being a philosophical heavyweight. In that regard, Gramsci was an overachiever. Because if the word didn't exist, he created it. These are words that he needed, a language that didn't yet exist, to describe what he understood to be going on around him. So he invented the use of words like hegemony, passive revolution, historical block, subaltern, organic intellectuals. Now that's an influencer. And speaking of philosophical heavyweights, I'm going to give a shout out to Santayana, the subject of the first podcast here at Christory, because Mussolini is a common thread between Gramsci and Santayana. They both supported Mussolini at first. Gramsci actually worked on the same journal that Mussolini also edited called Avanti, The general espoused socialist ideas, and Mussolini espoused socialism before he shifted like a chameleon to fascism. 
Mussolini and Gramsci were frenemies before they were enemies. The fact that Gramsci supported Mussolini gained him a lot of distrust amongst Italian radicals. It took him years of saying, my bad, publicly, to gain trust back from them. The political games of World War II would kill both Gramsci and Mussolini. Wars and revolutions often eat their own makers in time, and it happens time and time again. It's really nasty business. Gramsci's experience in the Communist Party in Italy is marked by the constant inner political party fighting. We're too radical. We're not radical enough style. I imagine trying to function in that party that it was worse than picking a lunch table on the first day at a new high school. Effectively, because he was in prison, Gramsci was removed from the cafeteria, so to speak. And it does seem like it helped him to express himself with more clarity. It's a lot easier from the outside looking in. His most important work was more than 30 handwritten prison notebooks. They were secured in a bank deposit until after the war. That's a massive haul of more than 3,000 pages of writing. He hadn't written anything book length that was published during his lifetime. Thankfully, because they were in a safe, it meant that these words and these ideas survived the war. Because of them, Gramsci was crafted into a martyr. It's circumstantial that his life was so painful and short. And he had this faith-based dedication to Marxist principles, even as it became clearer that they would work better on paper than on the street. After the war, a communist saint, as you will, would become a favorite of radical academics. Academics delayed their excitement about Gramsci, and that makes his legacy really complicated. It ended up to be a situation where you had too many intellectual cooks smart cooks, overzealous cooks in the kitchen. So untangling the legacy is, of Gramsci is like trying to untangle a hopelessly tangled necklace. It's as frustrating as hell. Gramsci wasn't published in English extensively until the 1970s, and that delay also affects how we read Gramsci. I'm not going to lie to you, it's a really heavy read. The nature of the circumstances of his prison notebooks makes for a deeply pessimistic tone at times. Gramsci is no Pollyanna. I mean, the good news is, is that you definitely won't find any toxic positivity in Gramsci. Gramsci talked about the duality of the quote-unquote pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will. My advice Don't make the mistake that many readers of Gramsci do and emphasize that second part, the optimism, because the first part, the pessimism, makes you uncomfortable. So prison notebooks were words written while languishing under the weight of his failing body and the emotional weight of isolation in prison. Gramsci never met the youngest of his two sons, and he never saw his wife again after 1926, because of her nervous condition, and it made her incapable of visiting him and seeing him that way. She really wasn't involved in helping him at all. Uh, It was his brother and his sister-in-law who sought to ensure that he had access to not only books, paper, but medicine 
clothes, and food. This is a never-give-up story that didn't end well, so I hope you weren't waiting for a miracle. If it puts you more at ease, Gramsci definitely wasn't hopeless. He wrote to his wife in 1927 that, and I quote, I view everything with a cold eye and with tranquility. Although I don't entertain a childish illusion, I am firmly convinced that I'm not destined to rot in prison. That glimmer of hope gave Gramsci the strength to resist until the end of his life with his pen, until he died of a massive brain hemorrhage. This writing is an expression of untamed tragedy on the edge of the largest and most destructive war the world would ever see. Gramsci had no way of seeing the other side of what he saw on the horizon. He told us that we aren't alone in feeling like we're living in a historical moment where the old world is dying and the new one is yet to be born. Even in his youth, Gramsci clearly played with the idea of bettering our circumstances. In an article that he wrote in the journal Avanti when he was young in 1916, Gramsci wrote that he hates New Year's Day because it makes it hard for us to understand that history continues to unfold along some fundamental, unchanging line, and it doesn't have abrupt stops. The problem with stops, like New Year's Day, he tells us, is that it's like when a cinema film rips and there's this interval of dazzling light. He wanted every day to be like New Year's. And he said that, he said, and I quote, every day I want to reckon with myself, and every day I want to renew myself. Ah, the energy of youth. (laughs) This is beyond Charlie Brown's New Year's Eve special. Uh, This is a tremendous amount of promise, and the idea of approaching every day like it's a fresh start in the way that Gramsci describes. That's some serious forward impulsion and a force for change right there. Also, this idea of marching down a historical timeline that continues on without breaks is a pretty cool one. I mean, Gramsci claimed that as one of his many intellectual pursuits that he was a historian because he had to explore layers of history to understand the politics of his time. I'm not so sure that he was a historian. In fact, I'm pretty sure he wasn't. But I'm supportive of an interesting argument for why history should be studied at all. He wrote Navanti about his dislike on the fixation on chronology because there are so many dates that you have to keep lodged in your mind. But then they make these false senses of stops and starts. Any history teacher worth their salt is going to make it clear that Rome didn't fall anywhere in a day in 476. And the Middle Ages didn't end when someone decided that they were over it. So bravo, Nino, for the really interesting historical argument. The takeaways here, there are many. Gramsci is a great example of how our environment makes us who we are. He overcame gargantuan-sized odds, as he's a very unlikely intellectual. And another takeaway, when historical heavyweights go toe-to-toe, it really muddies the waters. I mean, Mussolini made decisions like he wasn't always the sharpest crayon in the box, but he did understand that Gramsci was an immediate threat. 
And Gramsci made that really easy to see. In the one address that Gramsci was allowed to give in Italian parliament before he was arrested, he advocated for violence on the left because he told parliament that it was better than violence on the right. Not so smart. So I'm surprised that the coffee bar perched on Monte Orlando and Gaeta, where I sit writing the script, doesn't have any images of Gramsci. No. But while I'm sucking on shots of espresso and the fresh sea air, I'm looking at an eyebrow-raising makeshift shrine to Mussolini, not Gramsci. Gramsci might have been a kingpin in crafting 20th century communism in the West, but he simply isn't the type of guy you can market on a commemorative plate like a big old peacock. And those are exactly the types that we're interested in here at Christory. Although we might get around to Benito sooner rather than later, so stay tuned for the long haul. You probably didn't know Gramsci, but now you know. So I hope you're feeling motivated to explore the mind of this prickly, rather relentless, Sardinian super nerd. So I'll see you next time. Thanks for coming along for this wild ride, and I'll catch you later.